I had um, I had an experience once. I'll I'll tell you the story. Um, I was at a retreat, <coughs> a New Year's retreat, and I got called to say that my mother had had a heart attack, so I had to leave the retreat. And my teacher Jack Cornfield was teaching it, so I went to see him to say that I had to leave, and of course he agreed and uh, we talked about my mom and he asked me if I had any unfinished business with her and it was really a beautiful moment because he was so present with me right then and right there and he was so intently listening to everything that I said and there was something really um, I don't know, it's, it's even hard. It, there, was, there was a sublime feeling of being held in that moment because his attention was so complete in listening. And it was really interesting because then what happened is we said goodbye and we hugged. And I noticed that as I walked out of the room, he had completely ended the, the meeting with me. And at first it felt a little, oh, he should be a little bit clinging to me, right? <laughs> you know, at least don't be happy that I'm leaving. But there was something so clean about the way he ended that encounter and then turned to whatever it was he needed to pay attention to. And I really learned something very important and valuable in that moment about mindfulness, that it is... Um, that it's something that we um, use and practice every single moment of our lives and how, uh, how valuable it is that we can offer that presence to other beings and also how refreshing it is that, that there's no residue when we have an encounter. We have the encounter we meet it fully, and, it's, and then we move to the next thing. And it's complete, and it's done, and there's no residue. So see if, in practicing tonight, from the very beginning, we're, not, we're starting practice right now, when you encounter this other being with whom you are completely <coughs> connected. We're here together. Something has brought us, some momentum of our lives has brought us together in this room. It's not an accident that each one of us is here. So treat each person that you meet in that way with some curiosity and also with deep gratitude and appreciation that you're here and they're here. It's a beautiful thing. So please meet each other. And if you're new here, please come and introduce yourself to me, or if I've not met you. So did you notice any difference? being really conscious of being present for who you're speaking to or did you lose it right away? <laughs> Happens.
It's okay if it does. What do you, anybody want to be brave enough to tell me how, what your experience is like? Yes. What's your name? Genevieve. Genevieve? Genevieve, yes. Um, I found that I spoke with less people uh, for a more in-depth connecting conversation than I had in previous months. Lovely. So nice. And were you happy with that or would you have preferred to connect with more people? Both, both worked. <laughs> great, great, great. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Anybody lose it? <laughs> You're not going to admit it. Okay. <laughs> I lost it a couple of times, but then I got it right back. So, okay. Hmm. So there, there are a, couple, a few beginners here tonight, so we're going to do some full instructions. So for those of you who are more experienced, you have two choices. One is to just do what works for you, or, or that's your first choice. Your second choice is to follow the instructions, and both are good choices depending on how you feel. And you can just hear my voices sound. Hmm. Hmm. So arrive. Arrive here. Feel your feet on the floor if you're on a chair. Your buttocks on the chair. If you're on a cushion, feel your buttocks on the cushion. And in any event, no matter what you're sitting on, you can just feel the pressure that is created by this mass that we call a body. We don't notice, we're not present usually, for how embodied we are. In our practice, if we can really notice our embodiment, our practice becomes more grounded. We feel the rhythm of the earth in our own bodies. We allow our awareness in a way to come down from the mind into this pulsing vibratory, electric flow of energy, of blood, water, air, earth, and fire. This is very much a part of our experience that we tend to ignore because we're caught and consumed by the fabrications of the mind that so often bind us to suffering. We create projections 
and then believe they're true and real. Much of the time, we describe meditation as coming to know what is true. And the first truth is that we are in this body. First establishment of of meditation or mindfulness that the Buddha taught was the establishment of mindfulness in the body. So arrive here, molecule by molecule. Give the advice to not dwell on what has passed away or what is yet to come, but to allow the full mind and body to be established here and now. We can establish being here and now through knowing the breath intimately as it moves out and as it moves in. Knowing the rhythm, the beat, the flow and the vibration of this breath moving through the body, enlivening it and regulating it. It's not a small thing, this breath. So we can know how the breath moves in the body by observing it in the full body or as it moves past the upper lip into the nostrils and out of the nostrils past the upper lip. Or we can simply know the movement of the body as the air comes in and as it goes out. There is a rising on the in and a falling on the out. And as we pay attention to the breath in this way, we can also know the attitude of our mind, which is a key component of the meditation practice. Knowing any secret agendas that we may have to manipulate experience, to make it what we think it ought to be and then become attached to that 
wanting more because it's pleasant or rejecting what we hope it is not thinking that there is a right way to meditate and a wrong way as we do with everything else in our lives we can let go of the pressure, the stress of that and simply be with whatever arises in the body in the mind and in the heart without trying to make it a certain way without judging the way it is simply letting everything be just as it is whatever mind states arise boredom anger depression joy anticipation anxiety whatever arises can be known just as we know the breath and observed in its arising and its passing away not holding on to anything and not trying to get rid of anything just sitting here in dignity and integrity on our seat fully taking the seat in body in heart and in mind knowing this moment and this moment and this moment and this moment not holding back or falling forward just being nothing to do nothing to make happen nothing to judge just being here now Part of the journey of meditation is noticing when the mind has moved away from the present moment and is wallowing in something of the past 
or hopes and fears for the future. This is not a mistake and it's not a failure. Rather, you can take great joy from knowing actually what the mind is up to. Usually, we are simply led by the mind into whatever journeys it decides. So when you notice that the mind has gone away from the present moment, making some effort, although not over-efforting, to come back to this moment, either through the uh, vehicle of the breath or simply this present moment's experience, hearing, seeing, smelling, touching, tasting, or thinking, knowing that. And if you have to do that a thousand times, it's still not a failure. The actual movement of knowing where the mind is, is the transformational component of meditation. How is your energy? Have you allowed it to slip? How is your practice? Is it superficial and bouncing on the surface of the water like a cork? Or have you allowed it to drop like a stone into the depths of the water? Allow your awareness to be really alert, to be here.
I know there are some beginners here tonight. <clears throat> so I wonder if there are any questions about the meditation itself. You don't have to be a beginner to ask, but are there any questions? Dan, yeah. How does that translate into practice? practice? So Dan's asking about the instruction that I gave or the comment that I made about, that was in the form of a question, how is your practice now? Is it superficial? I don't think I used that word, but that's what I meant. Is, is it just kind of bobbing on the water? And that actually comes from the texts themselves. In the text, they, um, they say that mindfulness, one of the elements or qualities of mindfulness is non-superficiality. And the uh, image that they use for superficial is like a cork bobbing on the uh, surface of the water or empty pots being carried away by the stream. I love that. I, th I think that's really, that helps me to, to, to understand my state of mind. And then the, the non-superficial practice is that which, which drops like a stone. So Dan wanted to know how that, he understood what I said, but he wants to know how that translates um, to check in. Because it can be so um, seductive to just kind of ooze along. I bet nobody knows what I mean, right? I'm probably the only one that does that. But you, so you know what I mean if you're laughing, which is that your practice kind of becomes very pleasant and nothing's really happening and you're not really noticing. The practice is designed for you to notice progressively more and more subtle changes in your mental, emotional, and physical atmosphere. So if you're not noticing that, if you're not noticing, for instance, that a thought arises and it stays a while and it passes away, you're probably in a superficial state, which is, and that superficial state will take you away because that thought, whatever it is, if it's about your mother or about what you said today to your lover and what they said back and what you should have said, you know, you're the pot being taken away by the stream. So, so what you're actually noticing is when a thought arises, you're noticing that the thought has arisen, not that it's about your mother, but the actual process rather than the content of thought. And then you're noticing that it's there for, a, that is, well, usually I notice that if I notice that it's a thought, it disappears. If I don't notice it's a thought, it's hang, it hangs around and drags me around by my nose, right? So, so I'm, I'm keeping somewhat deep by literally noticing what's coming and going in my atmosphere. So I'm noticing the sounds that are arising and that they're passing away. 
And I'm, I may even be noticing, oh, I like that sound. Oh, I don't like that sound. Oh, I wish that one would go away. Oh, I wish that one would stay. So I'm noticing also the mental attitude and the relationship I'm having towards my experience. So I'm not superficial in, in the sense of just kind of surfing on the water, but actually dropping down. Does that help? And as you know, there are all kinds of goings on at New York Insight all the time. So we always encourage you to um, check the website, uh, mail out calendars. If you're on our mail, if you're not on our mailing list and would like to be on our mailing list, we sign up outside. Right? There's a sign-up sheet, and we always we are. I like to um, emphasize that New York Insight is not doesn't belong to anyone other than us. It belongs to every single being who walks in through the door and partakes of these incredibly valuable teachings. So um, we really encourage you to become part of our community. And if you find value in these practices and in these teachings, uh, to consider yourself completely invited to be to to come to our events to volunteer if you have talents that you think might be of use even if you think you don't have any talent to that there is always something that um, I'm sure you know how to do that we can we can make um, use of so um, tonight we have Casey and Nkasa who are our um, volunteers, they, they are. Thank you very much. Um, and it's really, it's a, it's a beautiful way to really feel a part of the, part of the organization. We don't, we're not a hugely, we're not a wealthy organization, so we really depend on the support of the people who come here to get some benefit from the practice. And way back when, when we founded New York Insight, we made that very um, conscious decision that we would operate in that way that New York Insight would not belong to anyone and that it would be supported by the community and if the community doesn't support it then it means that it's not doing uh, what the community needs but so far so good um, it's been 17 years and uh, it's you are sitting now um, basically in a deep stream of generosity. You're sitting and being the beneficiary of all of the beings who have come here from December of 1997 until now, who have come and found value in the practice, found community in our community, and um, have had some people have had really amazing transformative experiences in uh, listening to the teachings, investigating them, and putting them into practice. So you are completely invited, whoever you are, however you are, and whatever your um, predilections and your talents and your personality, whoever you are, you are completely welcome and embraced by us. So um, we 
have set up this this system where essentially we all support the community. We support financially, we support with our energy, and we support by our attendance here. When the teachers come, we don't get paid by New York Insight to teach, and so uh, we depend on your uh, your contributions and whatever contributions you are able to make are very much appreciated and go tonight they will go half to New York Insight to support its future programs and half uh, to me and that's usually how we do it with these sitting groups and generosity is you know one of the qualities that the Buddha encouraged in his students at the very beginning of his teaching so if you went to the Buddha and said, please give me teachings before teaching you how to meditate or talking about life or how you're going to live life, he would first talk about generosity and the practice of it because we take it as um, very much integrated in how we live a dharmic life. First, we open our hearts. And in order to, for the teachings to fall in, the heart must be open. And so this practice of generosity is an integral part of uh, the practices. So I invite you heartily, I've found it myself, to be a really joyous practice. And I'm going through a pretty hard time in my life right now. Uh, I have a loved one who is very ill. And what has been most moving and I can, I'm feeling very wealthy right now because I'm feeling tears coming to my eyes and I always feel wealthy when tears come to my eyes. There, I've been so moved by the generosity of people in this community and in whatever Dharma communities we're in that it's been, it's been absolutely amazing to me to feel all of the love that has come our way. And I'm completely convinced that that love has come as a result of our practice of generosity. And it doesn't mean that we practice generosity so when we need it, somebody will be there. That's not generosity. That, that we actually genuinely practice generosity because we know its benefits. That essentially we are not living in a state of deprivation or lack, that we really understand and trust the abundance and beauty of this universe to take care of us. And it doesn't mean things are always great, and it doesn't mean that we're gonna fly through life unscathed by its undulations and its ups and downs, but it does mean that a, a genuine trust gets established that whatever is happening, however life is unfolding, that there is something to learn and there is something to give. Even if we are in a rough time in our lives, we always have something to give, even if it's simply listening or simply being there or holding a friend's hand when she needs comfort or thinking about someone other than ourselves. It's a beautiful life that we live 
when we're able to understand that deeply. And we're only able to understand it if we undertake genuine and intentional practices of generosity. It's a beautiful practice, and I really recommend it to you uh, very deeply. So, anything else I forgot, Dalila? Great. Okay. So I wanted tonight to um, talk about spiritual intelligence. And it's, it's, a re, it's a classical teaching, which is um, it's derived from a classical teaching, what's called a sutta or a discourse of the Buddha. <clears throat> Actually, a couple of discourses of the Buddha. And it's also a teaching from Jeddha Krishnamurti. Uh, and we're going to weave those together and uh, talk about spiritual intelligence. So this teaching of the Buddha is a quite famous teaching, and it's called uh, the teaching of the second arrow. And I'm actually going to read the, the sutta to you. So sit back, telling you a story. Right. So he makes a distinction between what he calls an unenlightened being and a noble disciple. And he's, uh, he's teaching about what the distinction is between those two. He says the unenlightened being experiences pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, and neutral feelings. The noble disciple also experiences pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings. In this case, he says to his monks, what is the distinction between the unenlightened being and the noble disciple? He says, when an unenlightened being encounters unpleasant feeling, he grieves, he laments, he wails, beats his chest, and is distraught and distracted therein. Any familiarity with that at all? <laughs> oh, poor me. He experiences two kinds of feelings, namely in the body and in the mind. It is as if an archer, having fired one arrow into a certain man, were then to fire a second arrow. That man would experience pain from both arrows. Such as the unenlightened being, he experiences two kinds of pain, bodily and mental. Moreover, in experiencing an unpleasant feeling, he experiences displeasure. Displeased over that unpleasant feeling, latent tendencies, and this is important, latent tendencies to aversion, contingent on that unpleasant feeling are accumulated. In other words, when he feels a pleasant feeling, the uh, aversion starts to cook in his being. 
Confronted with unpleasant feeling, he seeks delight and sense pleasures. That familiar at all, or is that just me? A pint of chocolate ice cream, maybe? Why so? Because the unenlightened being knows of no other way out of unpleasant feeling than to seek the distraction of sense pleasures. Delighting thus in sense pleasures, latent tendencies to attachment contingent on those pleasant feelings are accumulated. So we start to have the tendencies towards wanting more, right? needing more sense pleasures. And not knowing these things as they really are, latent tendencies to delusion, contingent on neutral feelings, are accumulated. He is, I say, bound by suffering. So that's the unenlightened being, right? So it's quite scary, actually. You know, in, in one fell swoop, you have one unpleasant experience and suddenly you're all in the midst of your greed, hatred, and delusion, right? That's what he's saying. As for the noble disciple, O monks, experiencing unpleasant feeling, she neither grieves, laments, wails, or beats her chest. She is not distressed. The Buddha said he, but I'm saying she. <laughs> She experiences pain only in the body, not in the mind. Just as if an archer, having shot one arrow into a certain woman, were then to shoot a second arrow, but miss the mark. In this case, that woman would experience pain only on account of the first arrow, such as the noble disciple. She experiences pain in the body, but not in the mind. Moreover, she experiences no displeasure on account of that unpleasant feeling. And not being so, latent tendencies to aversion are not accumulated. Experiencing that unpleasant feeling, she does not seek distraction in sense pleasures. Why not? Because the noble disciple knows of a way out of unpleasant feelings other than distraction in sense pleasures. So latent tendencies to attachment are not accumulated, and equally latent tendencies to delusion are not accumulated. She is, I say, liberated from suffering. This, O oh monks and nuns, is the distinction, the contrast, the disparity between the noble disciple and the unenlightened being. So before commenting, we can say that basically there are three consequences of cultivating aversion. And that is accumulating tendencies for further aversion and for attachment and for ignorance. And for those of you who have been studying, you know that these three um, qualities in the mind, greed, hatred, and delusion, are what the Buddha calls the three poisons that cause suffering. So in one shot, it's just one unpleasant bodily experience and look at what happens, right? 
So here's another uh, teaching. from Krishnamurti, in which a questioner asks him, and Krishnamurti was a famous Indian teacher from the um, early to mid 20th century. I'm full of hate, the questioner says. Will you please teach me how to love? Krishnamurti. No one can teach you how to love. If people could be taught how to love, the world problem would be very simple, would it not? If we could learn how to love from a book, as we learn mathematics, this would be a marvelous world. There would be no hate, no exploitation, no wars, no division of rich and poor, and we would all be really friendly with each other. But love is not so easily come by. It is easy to hate, and hate brings people together after a fashion. It creates all kinds of fantasies. It brings about various types of cooperation, as in war. But love is much more difficult. You cannot learn how to love, and this is the important part, but what you can do is to observe hate and put it gently aside. Don't battle against hate. Don't say how terrible it is to hate people, but see hate for what it is and let it drop away. Brush it aside. It is not important. What is important is not to let hate take root in your mind. Do you understand? Your mind is like rich soil, and if given sufficient time, any problem that comes along takes root like a weed, and then you have the trouble of pulling it out. But if you do not give the problem sufficient time to take root, then it has no place to grow, and it will wither away. If you encourage hate, give it time to take root, to grow, to mature, it becomes an enormous problem. But if each time hate arises, you let it go by, then you will find that your mind becomes very sensitive without being sentimental. Therefore, it will lo know love. Love must come to the mind. And when once love is there, it has no division as sensuous and divine. It is love. That is the extraordinary thing about love. It is the only quality that brings a total comprehension of the whole of existence. So we could just sit and meditate after that, right? I don't need to really teach anything more. So if you look at these two teachings, you may be wondering what they have in common. What they actually have in common is a core of deep non-reactivity. And this non-reactivity 
isn't kind of behavior modification, right? It isn't that we say, I'm not going to react, right? And then whatever happens, happens, and you just kind of grit your teeth and bear down and not react. But actually, it's based on awareness. It's based on understanding. It's based on acceptance and it's based on letting go. And that's why it's deep and it comes back to Dan's question about non-superficiality. So if we were being superficial, we would be trying to train ourselves to not react. Well, good luck with that, right? We all know, we've, we've all tried that, I'm sure. But it's not possible unless there is underlying that uh, training in non-reactivity, deep understanding and acceptance. Superficial non-reactivity comes from control, from trying to control ourselves or trying to control the situation or trying to control how we feel about this or how we feel about that. And sometimes control is a necessary protection. It's not that control is always bad, but it can't be pacifying. It, control does not pacify us. It doesn't bring us peace. And actually, any teaching that the Buddha gives is really a teaching about coming fundamentally and finally to a place of peace. And, but when I say fundamentally and finally to a place of peace, I don't mean that we come to a place of peace and we get kind of frozen there. But that actually it's a moment-to-moment -moment practice where we keep working with whatever is arising. So something arises and we work with that. And we, under, and we, we see if we can understand and come to some acceptance and peace with whatever is happening. And through that, there's non-reactivity. And then something else happens. And again, we, we must exercise understanding and acceptance and peace again so that it's a constant kind of work. So, it's, so our, our practice really is to train ourselves in sensitivity so that we understand the difference between a peace based on control, non-reactivity that comes from control, and based on non-reactivity that comes from understanding. And even as I say those two words, control and understanding, I hope that you can feel, if you, have, if you can exercise your sensitivity, you can already feel the difference between what it would be like to be responding to what is true from a deep understanding of how things are and how, what it would be like to come to non-reactivity based on control, based on stealing ourselves against the truth of life. So it takes time, though, to begin to see this difference. So if we go back to the teaching, we see the example used of the second arrow as being dis deliberately simple. 
right? So there's a physical pain. That's the first arrow. And then there's a reaction to it, the aversion to physical pain. But of course, things can be more complicated than this, right? So it's not just physical pain, it's mental pain. And now, now we're going to start to get a little bit more complicated, a little bit more complex. Because emotional pain can sometimes be even more painful than, and more suffering than physical pain. So if a negative mental state comes unexpectedly, and the second arrow is a reaction to the negative state. And because of ignorance or unawareness, we don't even see the first state or the second. And we just suddenly find ourselves in an incredible bad mood. Right? And we have no idea where it came from. Right? Have you been there? And we're suffering and we're cursing and we don't even know what's happening. So this thing about arrows is going on all the time. Are you with me? Are you getting it? So what this practice wants to introduce us to more and more is into the understanding of these dynamics. And I was, I was reading today um, a, a piece about anger. A, a, Lama, a Lama was writing something on anger in which he was talking about um, how anger comes from our projection of a state or, uh, or an idea onto somebody else, right? And then we get angry about that projection, but because it's a projection, we think it's about the person or the situation. But actually, the anger is coming from our own mind state. Do, do you hear what I'm saying? And it's really, when I read that, I, I really was grateful for it. Because what it said, what, it, what I, it reminded me of is that I can actually practice whenever I feel anger coming up, I can actually practice by looking into what it is I'm angry at, right? And I'm not talking about compassionate, fierce compassion in which there's injustice or there's something that needs to be dealt with in the world that needs to be dealt with fiercely, but it can be dealt with with the kind of love that Krishnamurti is talking about. I'm actually talking about anger where I just get out of control, right? So that this anger com is coming from that projection that I have on somebody else, and I don't even notice that I'm actually angry at a phantom of my own mind. I actually think it's the person, right? And the person has absolutely nothing to do with it. But here I am in a bad mood, cursing the person, telling the person off, you know, and, but actually, it's my own delusion. So there's another famous teaching of the Buddha, which is a, a cute little story in which this, this 
teacher, actually, named Bahia, teacher of, in the time of the Buddha, hears that the Buddha is in the neighborhood, right, in the hood. And he says, and he goes, I really, I got to go see him, right? I, he's supposed to be this really, you know, fabulous guy, and he's got some wisdom, and I want to hear, I want to hear from him. So he finds the Buddha, but the Buddha is actually out on his alms rounds, right? Because he, he, that's how he ate, he, he begged. And Bahia says to him, I'm so glad I met you. I'm a teacher, but I know I have a lot to learn. Well, good for him, right? And I need you to tell me what the essence is of your teaching, and I need it now. <laughs> and the Buddha says, go away. You know, basically, I'm on arms round. This is not the time. <sighs> Bahia says, listen, I need it, and I need it now. You've got to tell me what you're... What just, and, and I don't need like a whole teaching and, you know, uh, nothing complicated, just give me the stuff, right? <laughs> and, Bahia, and, and the Buddha says, go away, I'm on arms round, it is not the time. Bahia says, I need it now, you don't get it, I need it now. And the Buddha, in many of the suttas, if you ask the Buddha three times, he would, he would answer you on the third time. So when he asks for the third time, the Buddha says, okay. Here's the, here's, the, here's the pith. Here's the pith teaching. Here's the essence of the teaching. In the seeing, he says, O Bahia, there is, o, Bahia was the name of the teacher, there is only what is seen. In the heard, only what is heard. In the sensed, through smell, taste, touch, etc., there is only what is sensed. And in the thought, there is only what is thought. And he goes on. He says, that is how, O Bahia, you must train yourself. Now when in the seeing there will be to you just the seen, in the herd, just the herd, etc., then Bahia you will have no thereby. When Bahia you have no thereby, you will have no therein. As you, Bahia, will have no therein, it follows that you will have no here, or beyond, or midway between. This is just the end of suffering. It's pretty simple. And of course, he means it's the end of proliferation, conceptual or emotional, crystal clear simplicity, which is, of course, the opposite of this incessant thing of arrows, right? Of Having the, having the pain, then the reaction to the pain, and then the reaction to the reaction, and then the pleasant, trying to get the pleasant, and the reaction to that, and the attachment, and all of that, that the Buddha is saying, if just what is seen is seen, just what is heard is heard, just what is tasted is tasted, just what is smelled is smelled, just what is thought is thought, all of this goes away. It's finish. It's complete and irreversible peace. So what does all this mean? It means that there is one thing in unpleasant feeling, and then there is a second tier, T-I-E-R, a second level, 
and that's the aversion to the unpleasant feeling. And usually, and this, this is what we're doing, so this is, this is the key, this is what we're doing when we actually sit down to practice, and this comes back to Dan's question, which is why I put that instruction in, because I knew I was going to give you this teaching about superficiality and non-superficiality. And what's ironic is that what is non-superficial is actually seeing what is seen, hearing what is heard, tasting what is tasted, smelling what is smelled, sensing what is sensed, and thinking what is thought. Just that and nothing else. So, our pra- so as we sit in, in meditation, that's what we're practicing. We're practicing to just see what is seen without the proliferation around it. And we're training ourselves not to just see what is seen without the proliferation around it when things are pleasant. But, and that's, this is the trick, is when things are unpleasant. We're, we're happy to do that, right? Oh, yeah, this is great. No. But then something comes and slams us like the illness of a loved one. And how are we going to keep our balance with that? How are we going to keep our balance with that? In the seen, there is simply the seen. In the heard, there is just what is heard, etc. So we're training and we're practicing to see that it's two things. There's the difficulty and the aversion to the difficulty. Those two must be separated. They are not conflated, and that's what we usually do. We conflate them. We think that if something is unpleasant, that we must hate it, that there's no alternative. And the Buddha is saying, no, 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 wait. There is, a, there is a, another way. And this is absolutely vital to learning the art of mindful living. And the second thing worth stressing is that it's very important knowledge once we start getting it into our system that the Buddha says, mind you, you're not only creating um, aversion and immediate suffering through the cultivation of aversion, but you're planting seeds for future suffering. How does that happen? How does it happen that in some simple situation where something bad happens and you create a version around it, that not only are you living with the aversion of this situation, but you're planting seeds for further aversion? When he said, when he, remember he said, Anusaya, latent tendencies for aversion are born in that situation. So you're not only being averse in this situation, you're not only filling your heart with hate, but you're planting the seeds for your heart to be filled with hate in the future situations. So that's not, it's not finished. The third point is at the same moment you cultivate attachment and the seeds for future attachment. I was on the way here, I was driving and I I was listening to NPR 
and there was a story about somebody who had given up television and how he couldn't believe that he was, how addicted he was to television. And because he realized that when something difficult would happen, he'd just go turn on the television, right? And whether he needed to listen to, you know, and he was saying uh, O'Reilly or, you know, Wolf Blitzer, that that was better than actually just being with what he needed to be with, what was difficult. So, we, so we, we're, create, we're creating a version in the moment, we're sowing seeds for a version in the future, and we're also sowing seeds for attachment and tr getting lost in the incredibly useless pursuit of happiness in sense pleasures. And it's not that sense pleasures aren't okay and that, you know, eating a wonderful cup of chocolate ice cream is, for me, wonderful. But how attached do we get to it? D does our happiness then become contingent on and conditioned on having pleasant uh, sense pleasures? So it's incredibly creative. It's incredibly creative in that moment. So in terms of what we can do to create suffering, so we can think of all kinds of things, like to con we're, we're miserable in our job, to compensate for the job, we start to drink, right? We, we start drinking, or to compensate for some failure, we start betraying our spouse. And from aversion, from displeasure, the pendulum goes into blind, blind and destructive desire. And we don't have a clue of what's happening, and this is ignorance. So we're hatred, attachment, and delusion, and then further seeds of ignorance. And what gets built up then is an incredible momentum. I was speaking to somebody at, on Father's Day who was telling me about his Father's Day. I said, oh, did you have a good Father's Day? He said, no, it was terrible. I said, what happened? He said, well, I hadn't seen my son in three months. And he showed up at my door and I said, oh, how wonderful for you. I said, did you hug him? What did, he said, no. I said, what are you doing here? He said, ah, right? So immediately, he couldn't understand why Father's Day had completely gone awry, off the rails. Right? And that's what we do. He was, he was so victimized by his son not visiting him that he couldn't, see, he couldn't see the beauty of the son actually visiting on Father's Day. So he got so tied up in his aversion to the pain that he had had, you know, over however long, that he, he kept sowing the seeds for further aversion. And then somehow, I, I don't know how our minds then think, that by attacking the sun, and we've all done it, right? This is not a person that's all by himself. We've all done it, that somehow there would be some safety or some compensation for the pain that he had suffered. So he was, con he was sowing those seeds for aversion from you know, the first pain.
So we get addicted to this momentum. And the unliberated mind, or the mind of aversion, or the mind of attachment, is addicted mind. And the addicted mind is vaster than one specific addiction. It's really addiction to these um, states of mind. So here's a little bit of advice from a Tibetan Lama named Patrul Rinpoche. He says there are two things you have to practice. The first is to dispense with the attitude of utter aversion to adversity. I like that. This you must eliminate. Ah! Right? I've got to like what I don't what I don't like, right? The second is to develop the attitude of good cheer in the face of adversity. So the more intensive our practice is, the the more receptive we become. So he says, let's begin with the first, dispensing with the attitude of utter aversion to adversity. There is really no reason to dislike adversity. How many people agree with that? (laughs) Instead, you must recognize again and again the pointlessness and the great detriment that arises from all of the miserable anxiety that is experienced through regarding adversity as something so totally unfavorable. Now, you gotta love this, right? Because this is coming from a Tibetan, and you know what they've been through in the last century, right? I mean, talk about adversity. You know, their whole culture completely you know, turned upside down their religion trashed in their own country, um, people, millions of people killed. I mean, this is adversity, yes? Right? Then he says, if you keep reminding yourself how pointless this is, you will begin to realize this. Then the second, he says, by trying to accustom yourself to the powerful anticipation of feeling that from now on, whenever there is adversity or suffering arises, I will not fear it. I will just allow it to be. Is this possible for you? Is it possible to just let it in? In this way, great courage is cultivated in the face of adversity. This is no simple matter. I'm happy he's bully for him that he recognizes this, right? But if you do this a number of times, this is the the key, then power develops and eventually the old habitual tendencies are put to rest. So it's not like you have to swallow the whole thing whole, you know, in one gulp and that there will be immediate transformation, but that actually not having aversion to adversity and thinking the impossible of developing cheerfulness in the face of adversity is really quite stunning. It's an amazing teaching. And if you do this, he says, a number of times, then power develops, and eventually the old habitual tendencies are put to rest. So all of the conditioning that we have that if there is a problem, that that problem 
should we need to be depressed, right? Because there's a there's a problem, and obviously things have gone terribly wrong if there's a problem, and somebody is to blame, and we try to find somebody to blame. Even sometimes we blame ourselves. So in other words, the more we understand this second arrow syndrome that the Buddha talked about, the more we begin approaching peace. And I, I really wanted to talk more about the, the, the role of mindfulness in, this, in, in practicing in this way but I'm running out of time, so I'm, I'm going to close by really suggesting one thing, that one really important aspect of this whole um, uh, scenario, and that is trust. So we're a community of color, and we are very, we're all very familiar with the oppression of people of color in this culture, in the world, it's just how it is. So we're not unfamiliar with adversity. I read a really amazing uh, exchange between um, Charles Johnson, who is a an African-American philosophy uh, professor at the University of Seattle, and another philosopher whose name I can't remember, and a, and a poet, three African-American men talking about Trayvon Martin, the Trayvon Martin case, and working with the perception of African-American men in this culture, and uh, the, really the danger of being an African-American man especially. It's not that the w we women are exempt, but that particularly in being an African-American man and being seen as criminalized and weaponized, etc. It was a very intense article. And so it's particularly difficult just walking around the world in a place where the, 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 the old conditioning still exists and still continues to oppress, even though there is a facade, a superficial facade of things being different. And they are, and you know, we, we know that there are aspects that are, have improved, and yet there is still an underlying issue of oppression and difficulty and adversity. And so I think that this teaching is particularly, particularly helpful because there is a double oppression if there is the external oppression and on top of it there is the aversion and the internal oppression. And so when I was thinking about what teaching I wanted to give tonight, I gave this teaching because I think it's particularly helpful to, um, to us as a, as a, as a general, generally as a group. But of course it's, it's also quite apposite because we're human beings. 
And there are lots of different versions and different ways that we encounter adversity because it's part of the landscape of being human. And that what spiritual intelligence is, is the recognition of this second arrow syndrome. And it's also the recognition that if we practice and we practice diligently, that there is an element of trust that gets established in our beings. And when I, what I mean by trust is that there is the ability to know that whatever is happening, first of all, we can encounter with a heart of kindness, as Krishnamurti was suggesting, that hate, it's not that hatred isn't going to come up. It's not that we're not going to find aversion to adversity, but that we can allow, we can see it and allow, allow it to go. We can let it go. And, but we do that not out of control, but we do it out of a sense of deep understanding and trust that even when things are difficult, that they are lawful. And lawful not in the sense of man-made laws, but lawful in the sense of the universe unfolding exactly according to the causes and conditions that are here. And that that trust gives us a sense of warmth and of light. And that that's what our practice offers us. And that's what allows us to, to move into that space of spaciousness and freedom is that we have a sense of warmth and light from our awareness and from our trust. And it's a big topic. It's a big topic. Because we've all, as human beings, been through a lot. And the question is, as Patrul Rinpoche is saying, how we find, how we let go of utter adversity, utter aversion to adversity. And that's demanding enough. But also, on top of that, to develop the cheerfulness. And so our practice is a, is a journey. It's not, it's not something where we're going to sit and we're going to have a really great time for 45 minutes or a boring time or we hate it or we're resistant or whatever happens, but that we learn something from it. And that we learn something over the many years that we're alive. And that our lives unfold in a way that has integrity and dignity, and that no matter what the adversity is that arrives, we know we can handle it. Because the understanding becomes deeper and deeper and deeper as we continue to practice. So that's what I wish for you, is that you are inspired to really look into this practice that is completely transformative, where you don't risk that Father's Day incident, right? You don't become so um, uh, tight around adversity, so averse to it, that you do the very opposite of what you need. And you do the very opposite 
in terms of setting down the conditions to receive what you need, but that instead you can approach the, every situation in life with the development of loving kindness and compassion that is needed along with the understanding about which we've been talking tonight that allows the aversion to adversity to let itself go and we become free of it not because we've controlled it into, do, into being so but because we actually have the understanding and the trust the light and the warmth to let it go and the cheerfulness arrives even in the darkest of times we don't need to be pulled down by adversity we can still float in the in the atmosphere of wisdom and compassion so thank you and we have a couple of minutes for uh, any questions or comments. What is it? It makes me want to run away from that pain. Um, when I feel it, the pain, the aversion, it's, it's a lack of trust that it's, it's too strong. And then it's going to continue and continue and then go, and I'll break. Mm. And I think what you're saying, what I feel is, you know, trust. Mm. That it's not, don't extract it. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, and that's what we're that's what we're training when we're when we're sitting, and we see the mind go forward and we bring it back, and we see it go back and we bring it forward, and we see it go forward and we bring it back. That's exactly what we're training. Is that what did Mark Twain say that uh, some of the worst disasters in my life never happened? Right? Most, of the mo most of the worst disasters in my life. And we're constantly there. And that's why it struck me so when I saw that article about anger 
just being expressed in that way. I've seen anger expressed, you know, defined and expressed in a lot of different ways. But just that idea that it really is a project. We're we're angry at the projection of the mind onto a person. It's not that people don't do terrible things. I'm not I'm not Pollyanna-ish, but we can be careful about what it is we're relating to in all of the different ways that we relate to them. So I, I really appreciate your saying that you see that, oh, I'm not there yet. I don't have to you know, extrapolate into the, you know, the end of the universe how this is going to create a nuclear war because I had this terrible day, right? That eventually it's all going to come to you know, the entire world blowing up because I had a bad day, right? And we do that. And, and how much suffering happens as a result of that. And so you're really, um, you're really lighting specifically on the Buddha's teaching that in the herd, there's just the herd. In the scene, there is just the scene. And there's no need for the proliferation beyond that. And that's what we're training all the time. And it's a journey. Thank you. Beautiful. Um, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this. We're trying to figure out how much um, to surrender to the moment and be present in the moment and allow for that person to be brand new in the moment. Mm. And, and how much to allow your previous experiences with that person to inform this moment so that you're not swept away into something that didn't mm-hmm. happen. Mm-hmm. So, anything you have to share about that? I, I forget who it is. I, th- I think it's T.S. Eliot who says every, in every moment we are meeting, a, even if we've known somebody forever, to remember that in every moment we're meeting a stranger. Right? And, this, uh, and my first teacher used to tell me to grant people their changes. Woof, that's hard, right? Because I remember that, right? You know, what do you mean I gotta grant them their changes? They'll never change, right? Right? But it's, but it's a beautiful practice. If every time we meet someone, and, and you know, the, the person that's ill is my husband, and it's so interesting because, because he does have a life-threatening illness to suddenly see him as new in every moment right now and then watch the mind think, oh, what if he dies? Right. What am I going to do? And then to bring my mind back. Oh, look, he's here right now. This is a new moment. This is a new moment. This is a new moment. It's a hell of a practice. It's very difficult, and it's amazing. And then, you know, I said to my teacher, what am I supposed to learn from this? And he said, you'll figure it out. Gee, thanks. (laughs) And then I did figure it out. 
It's that we need to love people while we have them. And how do we, how do we really do that? It's by really seeing them in every moment as just now, just here, just here, just here. No past, no future, just here. And your presence becomes deep. And you're, you'll be delightfully surprised at what will, what will happen because we are interconnected. And so when your presence is that deep, the other being feels it and responds. And I could, we could stay here all night telling each other stories about how that happens. And it does. And you can have complete, utter trust and faith that that is true. Thank you. So we have to end. So, as always, when we, when we get together in this way, we create a field of goodness, a field of meritorious energy that instead of keeping it for ourselves, we offer it to the world. And we cover the whole world with our goodwill and with the merits of our practice. And we dedicate the merits of our practice to the benefit, the welfare, the happiness, the well-being and the awakening of all beings everywhere without exception, wishing that all beings be safe from harm, all beings be happy and peaceful, all beings be healthy and strong of body, mind, heart and spirit, and may all beings be at ease, free from suffering and completely free. And in this couple of moments, if you'd like to mention the name of anyone that you feel would benefit from our gathering tonight and these, these good wishes and goodwill, please feel free to say their names out loud or in your heart. John. So we gather all of these beings into our hearts and we cover them with the protection of our love and our goodwill. Thank you so much for your attention. Have a good night and travel safely.